Thank you, Jeff, very much for that gracious introduction. And I also want to thank uh, General and Mrs. Metcalf uh, for their hospitality as well as uh, all the other folks here. This is just a, an incredible museum, and it's been a delight to come in from Washington this morning and, and be allowed to, uh, to tour uh, the restoration facilities and the museum here. And I, I certainly will uh, tell my colleagues that if they have an opportunity to come to Wright-Patterson, that this is a, a place to come and learn a lot uh, about the Air Force and about the extraordinary work of restoration and, and the work of the museum here. What, what I'd like to do tonight um, is to talk to you about Site 85. Um, as, as Jeff said, it is sort of a unique Air Force story. And uh, I'm especially gratified that, that the story has come more into the public be, because uh, I suspect that many of you, and, and I'll just ask, how many of you in here are veterans? So, so many of you. You know about service to your country and you know about responsibility, and you know about obligation, and you know about secrecy, and all the other things that, that those of us who have been in the military or still serve in the government, uh, the responsibilities that we have in those areas. And as Jeff alluded to, that was one of the most difficult things about Site 85, and that was that this was a program that was so highly classified that the Air Force personnel that went to serve at, at Pati, uh, at who is the is a Lao word for mountain, so it's often referred to as Pupati, that, that went to Site 85 uh, in the guise of civilians. They went there as employees of Lockheed Aircraft Corporation. Uh, they did that because for military t people to be in Laos at that time was a violation of the 1962 Geneva Accords. So um, I'm not going to go into a lot of uh, the historical background to the accords and U.S. policy and all that sort of thing. I'd be happy to take questions about that later, but let, let me start by just kind of giving you a little bit of background about why there was a Site 85. And again, if you have any questions at all, I'd be delighted to, uh, to take them at the end of the presentation. Um, but I do have some photographs that I want to show you that I think um, will give you sort of a good uh, understanding of, of what we're talking about. Um, this is actually a photograph of Site 85 uh, after uh, the site was built, and you can uh, see that, that uh, I'm, I'm sorry, this is before the site was built. So you see a, an incredible amount of vegetation here. You see these mountain ranges behind this area here, and the reason that Site 85 was so important was its geographic location. From this point, and I'll talk about this more in just a moment, it's about 120 miles to downtown Hanoi. So um, the geographic importance of this area. But I put this photograph up to show you the remoteness. If you drive this way, um, about 60 nautical miles or so, uh, it's only about 15 nautical miles to the North Vietnamese border. And then if you kept going, you would run up into another place that's well known to us called Dien Bien Phu. So uh, I'm going to show you another map here that kind of gives you a sense of where we're talking about. Um, so it's Site 85 is right about here. This is Samnua province here. And so Dien Bien Phu is right about there. And of course, they're driving into, uh, into Hanoi. So the, the background on this is that in 1967, the United States Air Force had a very, very difficult problem. And that problem was Lyndon Baines Johnson, the President of the United States. The president was, yeah, I, 
many of us remember that, don't we? The president was very, very unhappy that the United States Air Force was not able to basically destroy uh, the men and materiel that were flowing from Hanoi down through Laos and, and then into Cambodia or into South Vietnam. Um, but politically at that point, uh, the United States government, the Johnson administration, was not willing to use B-52 bombers. So for many of you who've served over there, you know that one of the problems in flying in Southeast Asia is it, it, the weather is incredibly bad. There are very few navigation aids back then. Um, a lot of these bombing missions either had to, be, had to take place either in bad weather or at night. And there were really only a couple of airplanes at that point that could do that effectively. Um, and one was the B-52, which we couldn't use. And so the decision was made that they would, and I put this picture in because it sort of shows, this is actually up on the Plain of Jars in, in uh, central Laos, but it, it shows uh, what B-52 strikes look like in tactical bombing. So for every one of these little fish ponds that you see here, there's probably you know, scores more that you don't see. Um, this is the most heavily bomb place on the face of the earth. And we can talk about that more later too if you like, but this is uh, the Plain of Jars, um, another indication of what it looks like. So what were we going after? We were going after large caves like this that were filled with incredible amounts of ammunition and food and medical supplies and all these kinds of things. I mean, Laos, and what I'm trying to do is, is sort of give you an explanation. Why were we bombing there? What were the Vietnamese moving through the country on the so-called Ho Chi Minh Trail? Well, they were moving things like this, all these supplies that were coming into the, the country and the so-called sort of the highway, if you will, that the Ho Chi Minh Trail was. And again, for those of you that may not remember or fully kind of get the idea of what the Ho Chi Minh Trail was, in some places um, there were blacktop roads. In other places there were as wide as the width of a, a bicycle tire. And quite frankly, the reason why it was so difficult for us, and, and in my view anyway, ultimately it was impossible to stop the Vietnamese, is because they would put hundreds and hundreds of pounds of rice and food and ammunition or whatever on these bicycles. And so you could bomb all day long, but as long as they had something the width of those bicycle tires, they could still push that stuff south, and, and they did. The, the other thing for the, for the younger folks in the audience that may not remember the sort of pre-microwave days, and that is that, you know, we didn't always have smart bombs. You have all the video games now where you go ch -ch 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 and everything disappears. Well, you know, back in the mid-60s and at the time we're talking about here, all we had were dumb bombs. And so these caves and places like this that today you take out in a second with a laser-guided laser -guided bomb, um, we were not able to do that back then. And so uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that when uh, I talk about the destruction of Site 85. But it was a very, very difficult uh, uh, bombing target back then to hit, hit these targets. So these are F-105s, just like uh, you have here in the museum. And I put these up because the project at Site 85, the ground-directed radar that was used at Site 85, was only used with F-105s. Um, there's been some, some sort of misunderstanding through the years about that, uh, that some people think that, that B-52s were directed off of Site 85. Not so. B-52s were directed by ground-directed radar from other sites in South Vietnam and from Thailand 
uh, most notably under a program called Operation Niagara, which was the defense of Quezon in 1968. So different program. But the radar that I'm talking about um, was called Combat Sky Spot. So those of you that may have either been involved in that program or heard about it, Combat Sky Spot was a, was a program that had been around for a long time with the Strategic Air Command to use ground-directed radar to tell an airplane, drive on this course, get into this position, and when I give you the signal, drop your bombs. So it was a very, very effective system for an aircraft that couldn't see its target, and that was the problem with bombing into North Vietnam. Now, the issue with the MSQ-77, the, the combat sky spot radar, was that you had to basically be within 150 nautical miles of your target. And again, if you go back to the geography of, of uh, the countries we're talking about, to get within 150 miles of Hanoi and the railroad yards and the other places that, that LBJ wanted us to bomb, the only place that you could be was either out in the ocean, in the Gulf of Tonkin, or in Laos. And so the problem, and, and they actually did uh, a couple of tests on ships to see if they could place the radar out there. But the problem is, and, and I'm just a, you know, a liberal arts kid from Honolulu, so I'm not even going to try and tell you the math on this thing, but the fact is they couldn't position the ships systematically in a way to have the radar aboard those ships. So the only, only other place to put it was in Laos. And so the President of the United States made the decision that the U.S. government would violate the 1962 Accords and that we would create something called Operation Heavy Hook. And Heavy Hook was the code name for the Air Force personnel who had all been Air Force technicians, nearly all of them combat veterans from uh, or had served in combat tours in South Vietnam, these people were all recruited into this uh, heavy green program. They all signed top secret agreements um, that said that they understood that they were going into this program and that at the conclusion of the program they would be brought back into the, into the Air Force. Um, with the exception of one spouse, all of their spouses were also brought into the program and, and signed the, the paperwork. The one spouse that uh, was not read into the program was actually a German national. And that's, that's a longer story, which uh, I, 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 do, I do talk about in the book, but it's, it's probably not necessary to talk about it now. Um, so all these people knew what they were doing. They all knew that they were signing up for something. They all knew that it would be pretty temporary because, and here's the key point, ladies and gentlemen. When I was talking to the survivors, when I was talking to the other people about this program, they all believed, they all believed that they could make a difference by going there and working in this program, and that that would bring a conclusion to this war. They all believed that. You know, they weren't, they weren't going to make a lot of money. There was going to be no glory. There was going to be no glory because, you know, in many organizations, um, you know, we don't talk about what we do. And nobody was ever going to talk about what was going on in Site 85. So they didn't go there for the glory. So after President Johnson agreed to set up Site 85, there was a decision made to create a smaller radar that could be placed basically in small boxes that could be placed on helicopters that could be hauled up to this very, very remote site. And so they created something called a TSQ-77. So that was the technical name of the radar, and I'm going to show you that now. So 
this is what it looks like up there flying around. And again, as Jeff said, I, I didn't fly in northern Laos during the war. I flew in over mostly central Laos during the war. But after the war, I did end up flying a lot up into, into uh, uh, Laos. And it's, uh, I, I only wish that at that point I was flying with Air America pilots and not some of the Lao pilots that I was having to go with. It was pretty, pretty sporty some days. So again, the significance of Lima Side 85 is it's the largest single Air Force ground loss of the entire Vietnam War. It occurred in 11 March 1968. Um, there were at that point 11 people uh, unaccounted for. Um, 150 tons of equipment uh, that was up there at the time. Uh, the, the key fact here, and the reason why I go through it this way is that um, I did for many years work on uh, investigating American losses all over Southeast Asia. And, and this case is completely different because there was so much there, there were so many people involved, and the communists overran this place on the 11th of March 1968, and they're still there. I mean, when we're investigating losses in other places in these other, pla in other parts of, the, of either Laos, Vietnam, or Cambodia, um, it, you know, it, it would be a couple of people maybe in a, in a two-person aircraft or one-person aircraft, multi-engine sometimes or multi-crew, but, but never this kind of equipment and this, this kind of, uh, these kinds of clues as to what should have happened. Well, I'm going to show you some pictures or talk to you about it. None, none of this stuff is up there anymore, so where, where did it go? And then um, it is a major theme in the People's Army of Vietnam history. If you go through uh, museums throughout Vietnam, you'll see all kinds of discussion about um, the great victory that the Vietnamese people had over the destruction of Site 85. Um, it's very interesting, though. The destruction and the pictures that they show are when they claim that they destroyed the site in January of 1968 in, in an air attack. And again, later if we have time, I can talk about that. But just briefly, in January of 1968, in the only known case that this ever occurred, the North Vietnamese sent four biplanes and two Colt biplanes to attack Site 85 by, by bombing them from the air. Two of them, uh, it turned out, um, used good sense and didn't join in the attack. But the two that did flew over the top of the site um, tried to carry out, carry out a bombing run. An Air America Huey helicopter that was working nearby chased down one and shot down one, and the other one ran into a mountain as it was trying to get away. So, um, and, and at headquarters, we actually have the painting that depicts the shoot down of, uh, you know, the only time a, a, a rotary wing aircraft is shot down a fixed wing aircraft, so it's pretty cool. We actually have some pieces of the N-2 up at headquarters as well. And then the other thing that's important from the Air Force standpoint, obviously, is Chief Master Sergeant uh, uh, Dick Etchberger. Um, Chief Master Sergeant Etchberger's story I will talk to you about here shortly, but he did receive a posthumous Air Force Cross, and uh, the Secretary of the Air Force has recommended to the Secretary of Defense that, that it be upgraded to the Medal of Honor. So we're, we're still waiting for that right now. So here are some pictures of the construction. And again, um, this is actually a photograph that was taken uh, when I was up there with the first group of Americans to go back to Site 85 in 1994. And so you can see, when I talk about the cliffs later on, this drops off about 2,000 feet here. The radar equipment was located all along the cliff line here. There, there are some of the people in the recovery team here. This is where the CIA operations area was at, and I'll be talking about that more in a little bit. 
This is actually a, a squirrel helicopter, and this is how we actually got up there because the, uh, at that time we were flying in, in Soviet Mi-8 helicopters, but the Lao pilots were so bad, and, and it's good that they decided not to try it, they wouldn't even try and land up here. So we actually landed on another mountain a little bit further away and then jumped on these smaller helicopters that were actually flown by, uh, mostly by New Zealand pilots. And that's how we, we got back and forth. But um, so this is what the site actually looked like. And again, I'm, I'm going back and forth here because I want to give you sort of a mental pi picture of what we're going to be talking about. This is actually the radar site once it was built. So these are living quarters back through here. These are some diesel generators. But this is actually the operations area that's a radar dish there. When the attack occurred that I'm going to talk about, the attackers actually came up along here, surrounded the area here, sealed it off, and the rescue that, that I'm going to talk about occurred from the rocky area right about here. And again, the CIA area is actually further down here. So when I talk about that rescue, I'll be talking about somebody coming up the jungle that way. Um, this is about 5,400 feet in elevation. So again, uh, as a helicopter guy, and for those of you that are aviators or just, just think about what it's like with all the air currents trying to hold a hover over a 2,000-foot drop-off into a valley that then goes down another 3,000 feet um, in the weather was absolutely incredible, just absolutely incredible. So this is, again, what it looks like. Um, along that ridge right there, and that's the drop-off, and that's the highest point. That goes up to about 5,600 feet. This is the western cliff of Pati. Again, this just shows some of the cloud deck and, and, again, how difficult, if you can imagine these Air Force technicians being flown in here, dropped off to work there for usually between two and three weeks in, in these very isolated conditions, there, there's nothing around here, obviously, but other mountains and, and lots of North Vietnamese. This shows down in the valley uh, a runway and a Hmong village. This is looking down from Site 85, down into the valley floor. This is another good picture uh, of what the site looks like. Again, the drop-off there. And when I talk about those sappers climbing, this is the way they came up. Pretty incredible. Now, um, this is actually a schematic that, that I did for the book so people could sort of understand. Again, what I just showed you visually, these are the areas where the people work, the living quarters, those generators. There was a 12.7 gun that was set up after those dummy and two Colts came in in January. They put a gun up there. And then there's a TACAN, a tactical air navigation system that was sitting right there. And then this is that western cliff that I was talking about. So President Johnson says, go ahead and build this thing. They create this new radar system that they can actually put in boxes. And so they use these Chinook helicopters to come up to Site 85. And they brought this thing in there. And an Air Force crew uh, hauled this stuff in there and started putting it together. Now, one of the things I talked about with, with some of the folks from here at lunch is one of the benefits um, I guess it's a benefit, <laughs> of, of writing a very uh, interesting but very secret story is that you hope you've got everything. Well, after the book came out, all these picture, pictures started showing up. 
And it's one of these things that, you know, at the time it would have been nice because I would have loved to have had these pictures to, to put in the book and illustrate what, you know, a better way of showing what happened. But uh, in any case, um, all those people that told me that they didn't have cameras because that was against the rules and there were no pictures, <laughs> lots of pictures showed up later on. So I, I'm, I'm happy to share them with you now. But um, this shows uh, the CIA uh, operations area here. And again, this was what, what was called the lower helipad. Now, when the final assault on Site 85 begins in March of 68, on the night of the 10th, this place is under incredible bombardment. And there are three Americans down here, two CIA officers and one uh, Air Force forward air guide. So when I talk about the lower helipad, this is what I'm talking about here. And this is where a lot of the Air America helicopters came into and also the Air Force uh, uh, actually, my, my squadron, this was earlier than when I flew with them, but uh, the Jollies and the uh, Special Operations uh, 21st uh, landed in here to, to take out both indigenous people and, uh, and the CIA officers and the Air Force guy that was down here. So again, just, just more indications of, you know, when I say 150 tons of equipment, I'm not kidding. I mean, this was a huge operation. The, the other thing, as you can imagine, is, is this is an incredibly remote area in the middle of nowhere on the side of this mountain. And when the justification went forward, um, that was one of the things that the Air Force said is, well, this is so remote that nobody's going to know what's going on here. You know? Okay. So then, you know, you, you fly for months, helicopters in and out every day, dropping this stuff off. When the engineers came in, they said, you know, we need to flatten out the area. So they dynamited <laughs> off part of the western cliff. So... You know, it didn't take a rocket science, scientist long to figure out there was something going on here. Um, and, and what happens is, is the Vietnamese then begin to send patrols into the area. They start trying to figure out what's going on. And uh, I'm going to get to that part of the story in a second, but um, it's, it's clearly not a secret. Now, it was pretty rough. I mean, these are, they're actually climbing with this stuff up. And this is very typical of Laos and, and in that part of Vietnam, this karst-like um, sort of very jagged uh, uh, rock formations that are all over the place and lots and lots of caves. So these guys are hauling this stuff up there. And, and it is very, very difficult work. And uh, again, you see them just in civilian clothes. Now, these people were not really part of the heavy green program um, because they were the ones that actually put the site together and then to protect the security, the heavy green people that were going to run the program flew up, actually went into a tent um, and were sort of isolated. These guys then went down to the helicopters and, and left um, and then the other people came out and went up to the site. So they actually never saw each other. And it's one of these very interesting things where later on um, people realized really what had happened, but, it, but again, it was a security issue. And again, just an idea of how difficult it was to put these things together. So these are very, very heavy uh, girders that are all part of putting this big radar dish together and so forth. The reason why these are very interesting is, is a lot of this is still up there. When we got there in 1994, a lot of this was still there. We thought that we had, had bombed the site sufficiently to destroy all of it. Not, not so. And again, this gives you an idea of uh, right along here is where that cliff is at. So 
they're standing, you know, 10 or 15 yards from a drop off of about 2,000 feet there. Um, this picture is instructive because what we see here is this is a little Hmong girl. Um, and there were also some indigenous uh, security people that were up there. So again, in terms of security, um, you know, lots of people knew that there were Americans up there. Lots of people knew what was going on. Uh, that's the TACAN right there, by the way. You can see that pretty clearly in this picture. The other thing I would say is, is that in terms of security, the plan was that if the site looked like it could not be defended any longer, there were explosives that were actually um, pre-located into the equipment. And so the, the plan was is that the site would just be blown up and these guys would fly off to another mountaintop and they'd start up somewhere else. Um, it didn't turn out that way. And these are just um, some tanks that they were using up there for uh, fuel and for water. And again, the, the buildings began to take shape up there. Again, all this stuff had to be hauled up on helicopters. It was just a, a massive undertaking. This is a great picture because it actually shows them right up against the cliff and dropping down into that valley. And on a clear day like this, I mean, it, it's just absolutely spectacular. Um, when the first engineers went up there, you know, like me, on a clear day when I was up there, it, it's, it's just beautiful. It's just absolutely beautiful. If there wasn't a war going on, you know, we could sell real estate up there. But uh, really, really pretty. Again, like many people in this audience, a lot of very, very dedicated, loyal Americans that went up there and took great risk and put the site together. And again, you see a lot of indigenous folks that are, uh, you know, this just kind of reminds me of, of uh, public works in Alabama. There's 12 people standing around looking at a hole, um, diggers and fillers kind of thing. But, see, if I said that about Hawaii, I'd get in trouble. But I, I can say it about Alabama. It's same thing in Hawaii, though. So uh, they're having a little meal here at their lean-to. And you know people are getting ready to go home. And you've got to have your facilities. So there's the no running water. And this is a good picture of what the radar site looked like as it was being finished. And this is actually the living quarters down here. Um, and these are the radar operations areas here. Again, when the Vietnamese came up, they came around from behind, circled this area, and carried out the attack that way. And this just, again, shows the radar there. OK, so the communist attack. Um, there had been the air attack in January of 1968, which was unsuccessful. Um, so then they actually put more people into the, the attack. And so at, at some point, there are thousands, perhaps as many as 10,000 North Vietnamese forces that are converging on Site 85. They're actually building roads to get to this place. And the reason why we know that is because our people were up there on the mountain you know, watching them. Now, you might ask, um, why didn't we leave at that point? Well, because what happened is that the people at Site 85 that were directing those F-105 bombers against targets in North Vietnam, what was happening now is the North Vietnamese were massing forces, so we had incredible new what we would call today target decks. So we, we had lots of, of good targets out there. And so basically, um, the decision was made that, well, as long as we can continue to kill lots of North Vietnamese, that's a good thing. And uh, we've got the resources to do it. So as they continued to get closer to Site 85, we basically just stepped up the bombing against them. And so that's why the site stayed open. 
And, and there's a lot of, of documentation, again, that's in the book that talks about the decisions that were made. As they got closer and closer, um, the CIA became very nervous about this. The CIA station chief actually recommended that the site be closed. Um, and the decision uh, went to the ambassador. The, the ambassador, Ambassador Sullivan, deferred to uh, the Air Force. And the Air Force came back and said, no, this is really important. This is the only capability that we have. And we need to continue to keep the site open. And they actually sent more technicians to Site 85 so that they could do 24-hour-a-day bombing. Now, having said that, um, I would also tell you that they also increased the plans to how to get people out. And, and what I would tell you is that um, anybody that's ever been there, anybody that's ever looked at this area, and I've talked to a lot of not only Vietnamese but Lao and, and U.S. military people that know their, the art of war, no one ever imagined except those Vietnamese that anybody would ever be able to climb that western cliff. So when the Vietnamese began to put pressure on the bottom of the mountain and they were firing the artillery and the rockets and assaulting the mountain, no one ever thought that, that the attack would come from any place other than from the eastern side, which was well defended, and that there would be enough time to remove the technicians. And everybody felt that way, even the technicians. Uh, that's not what happened, though. What did happen is uh, at about, well, beginning at the afternoon, late afternoon before, and then into the darkness, a group of about 20 sappers, uh, Vietnamese commandos, actually climbed up the side of the mountain, came around here, and by about 2 o'clock in the morning on uh, 11 March 1968, they sealed off Site 85. Now, there are 16 Americans here, and there are three Americans at the CIA area. They sealed it off. They began to fire rocket-propelled grenades, AK-47s, into this area. We know that some of the technicians escaped down to this area here, and I'll talk about that in just a moment. We know that some of them went down to an area here. Quite frankly, we don't know where everybody went. And, and I, you know, I go into some exhaustive detail about that in trying to sort of figure out based on what we know, what we know and what we don't know. When this happened, uh, again, it was in the middle of the night. Um, obviously, it was a terrifying situation for everybody. Um, again, to give you an idea, there were people inside the vans that were working at that time. There were some people that were outside the vans. Um, there's a little bit of a path that goes down to this area here. And this is where Chief Master Sergeant Etchberger, uh, Staff Sergeant John Daniel, uh, Captain Stan Sliz uh, were, were at. Um, there had been two other uh, heavy green people uh, that were on that ledge earlier. And both of them, according to eyewitnesses, were killed and fell off at that point. Uh, their remains were blown off. So those are really the only two people, in my view anyway, that we are absolutely certain because there were American eyewitnesses that, that saw them perish. So this is where Chief Master Sergeant uh, uh, Etchberger was at. Let me go back to this one so you can understand a little bit more. So the attack has occurred. Um, the CIA is, is trying to get uh, people up there. Uh, the Air Force is trying to get people up there. Uh, Air America. Air America had been uh, the in-country rescue force for the U.S. military and for Air America personnel from the early 60s. 
for many, many years before the Air Force ever had a rescue capability, Air America was already there. And if you think of Air America as just sort of a, uh, you know, a bunch of an, an aerial network of people just running from place to place, dropping off folks, picking up folks, uh, picking up rice, moving rice, uh, hard rice, which is a euphemism for ammunition. That's what they were doing all day long is flying around in, in helicopters and in fixed-wing aircraft. Well, that morning, uh, an Air America Huey helicopter uh, heard that there was something going on at Site 85, a radio call, and actually flew to this location and found Chief Master Sergeant Etchberger and uh, John Daniel and Stan Sliz um, went into a hover. And again, for those of you that have an aviation background, you understand this. For those of you that don't, a Huey helicopter is, in this case, unarmed, um, defenseless, holding in a hover in those currents. Even as I stand here, every time I tell this, I just I can't believe that they did it. But they held that hover, they dropped the hoist down, and they brought the people up. And Chief Master Sergeant Etchberger was the last person that was going to get on the hoist to come up. At that point, Willie Husband, who had been hiding somewhere up here, came running down, and together they jumped on the hoist, and up the helicopter went. And uh, sadly, at that point, as the helicopter is pulling away, uh, the Vietnamese fired into the helicopter, and a round came up through the bottom of the helicopter. It split the, uh, the rifle butt of the crew chief on the Air America helicopter and then struck Chief Master Sergeant Etchberger. Uh, chief, chief, chief Etchberger died. Uh, he bled out by the time they got him to, uh, to a hospital. Um, John Daniel and uh, Stan Sliz and uh, John Daniel... I'm sorry, John Daniel, Stan Sliz, and Willie Husband survived. Um, I'll come back to that later if you have other questions. At the same time, there was also another Site 85 survivor who was located further over here. A Jolly Green Giant helicopter came in. Now, a Jolly, of course, um, is armored. It, it does have a capability to fire back, but it didn't. It, too, came into a hover, and it lowered a pararescueman on a hoist to an area that they had spotted a number of bodies. And that pararescue man's name was J.J. Uh, Rogers. I met him later. I actually brought him down to Maxwell. J.J. Rogers also has the uh, in, incredible sense, and it's in your display here. Um, I thought about him today. J.J. Uh, Rogers was also on the Santé raid. So he participated in two of these major events. Uh, it's absolutely incredible. But anyway, J.J. went down on the uh, hoist, and as he was crabbing along on the side of that mountain, looking down at these bodies, trying to see if anybody was still alive, his, uh, what we used to call car 15s, basically a, a shortened version of an M M16, slipped off his arm. So he decided, you know, I'm not going to go after it. I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. Well, that becomes important because in a moment, um, one of the survivors reaches out, Jack Starling, and grabs J.J.'s foot. And he says that if he'd had his weapon, he probably would have shot the guy. Um, as it was, he grabs a hold of Starling. Now, you saw what that looked like. At this point, he says, let's go. 
And so they're both on that hoist. A helicopter pulls off, and you saw the valley. The helicopter swings out over the valley with those two guys hanging on the end of it. Uh, and then the, uh, the other pararescuemen pulled them up inside the uh, jolly, and they pulled off. Now, sadly, uh, those are the only heavy green survivors. So there were 11 heavy green Air Force technicians who were then technically civilians working for Lockheed who did not make it off of Site 85. Um, now, down in the CIA operations area, at daybreak, again, there were two CIA officers down there. And as part of the program that we just did in Dallas um, a few weeks ago, uh, the agency has now publicly acknowledged the names of both of the officers involved there. Um, Howard Freeman was the senior case officer. Uh, he actually took a shotgun and a group of Hmong uh, guards with him. He worked his way up from that lower helipad, got up into this area here where he came under fire by the North Vietnamese attackers and Howard was actually shot in the leg. He returned fire, um, uh, actually threw a grenade I think at one point, um, but had to be evacuated down with a wound in his, his leg. But Howard Freeman went up there by himself basically searching and never realized. The timeline suggests that as Howard was up here training, trading fire, those people were still over here. They hadn't been rescued yet. But Howard had no way of knowing that. So he was evacuated back down to the lower helipad. And later, uh, he and the other uh, Woody Spence, the other CIA officer that was down there, uh, Woody suffered permanent hearing damage as a result of, there, there was a tremendous artillery and rocket barrage that was going on through this entire thing. Because that's what the Americans thought was the primary assault force was coming from the eastern side, not realizing that these sappers had actually climbed the mountain. So uh, that's the other rescue attempt that was made, uh, the Jolly Green rescue attempt that was made over in this area, um, but 11 uh, heavy green Air Force personnel that, that were lost at that point. Now the reason why I put an asterisk on the, uh, uh, on the slide earlier is because um, in subsequent trips, not on the, the visit that I made in 1994, we did not recover any remains, but after that, uh, the joint casualty, uh, it's, it's been called a, a number of different names, but it's now called JPAC. Back then it was called uh, uh, JPRC, I think. Anyway, uh, the recovery folks, the, the military people, not, not, in, not intelligence people like me, but other people that do that stuff, um, went up there and actually recovered remains. So there are only 10. Uh, unaccounted for from Site 85, as well as an A1E pilot, Major Westerbrook, who uh, died when his A1 actually hit the side of the mountain um, as they were attacking the site later on in the day. Um, that's the other thing I should probably point out is that once, once these people were recovered, um, Ambassador Sullivan was asked to destroy the site, um, to destroy the evidence. And so at that point, um, and again, there's a lot of conjecture about this, and I try and go through it as best I can, but the decision was made to, to, to destroy the site, and uh, it's very clear when we got there in 1994 that actually that didn't happen. And in fact, in the, in the Vietnamese archives, we found photographs that the Vietnamese took of these buildings almost completely intact. So we know that the Vietnamese got up there and had a lot of time 
uh, to recover materials and so forth. The reason why I bring that up is because the Vietnamese position on this still is that they don't know what happened. Um, uh, I mean, they don't, they don't know what happened to the equipment. Um, they have said that, that their people got up there and didn't take anything and threw all the bodies over the cliff. Well, I don't believe that that's what happened. But, um, so the rescues by the Air America and Jolly Green crews, the rescue attempt by CIA officer Howard Freeman, and as I say, Howard Freeman uh, later was actually awarded the Intelligence Star by the CIA, which is, which is one of our highest uh, um, awards that can be given for, for valor. Um, and Howard Freeman is, is uh, uh, still alive and kicking today. He's, he's quite, a, quite a person. One of the things that's interesting about doing things like this is, uh, and I, I don't think I've ever shared this with anybody actually now that I think about this, his son came up to me after the presentation in Dallas. I didn't even know he was in the audience. It was amazing. Walked up and said, you know, that was my dad you were talking about. So here's a photograph of uh, Mrs. Etchberger receiving the Air Force Cross in a top secret ceremony in the Pentagon. It was the best that the Air Force could do. And uh, the Air Force actually didn't declassify the heavy green program um, for more than another 20 years after she received the Air Force Cross. So this remained a, a very, very uh, uh, hidden program for many, many years. Um, just to finish that part of the story, uh, once all of the uh, heavy green people, both the people that were missing and the survivors were, it was sort of determined what they thought had happened to everybody, then the Air Force uh, brought almost all of them back into the military and their ranks were restored. But part of the issue with the widows was that they then were eligible for both workman's compensation because they were civilian employees, but they were all, so they got some insurance benefits, although not a lot really, workman's compensation, but also survivor benefits from the Air Force once they were restored to Air Force service. And that was actually one of the reasons that many of the wives were told, if you ever talk about this, you'll lose your benefits. So it was another uh, um, you know, issue there. Um, I think that's pretty much what I've got. Um, the, the one thing I would end on there is I, I had the great honor uh, a month or so ago to pay an office call with, with General Schwartz, and uh, he was good enough to put this book on the Air Force reading list, and so I was invited to come by and see him and talk to him about Chief Etchberger and some other things, and of course he has a special ops background uh, um, as well. So, but you know, one of the things that, that we talked about was how extraordinary it is that the Air Force today um, could, could put a book like that on a reading list and say people in the Air Force should read this. I can tell you that when I finished writing this book and I was a professor at the Air War College, so it wasn't like they were going to take me out and shoot me, but I was really nervous because you know I, I, I do criticize the Air Force pretty, pretty thoroughly where I thought it was necessary and, and it was the former Chief of Staff of the Air Force, General Fogelman, who actually, uh, in Air Force parlance, gave me top cover, I believe. Um, General Fogelman, like me, had taught at the Air Force Academy at one time at, in the History Department. He's quite a historian, and, and he only asked me one real question. I mean, he went, went through the book very thoroughly, but he said, did you give General Momeyer, who was then the commander of 7th Air Force, um, a chance to sort of refute uh, some of the comments that you make? I said, yes, sir, I did. I said, okay, go forward. 
And I, I didn't lose my job. That's not why I work for the CIA today. But, um, well, thank you all very, very much.